everyone. Emma Cox with McDonald's, uh, also secretary on the EC for, um, for this chapter. So welcome. Today we're going to try something new with our sponsors. Um, so as a part of our 2018 sponsor benefits, our platinum and diamond sponsors have the opportunity to give a short briefing of their companies. Today we have four. Ted Moodis Associates, you'll notice uh, Ted Moodis left a generous present on each of your chairs. Um, CBRE, Mohawk, and JLL. So uh, let me introduce Diana Pizzoni with Ted Moodis Associates, who will be kicking us off on this new portion of our program. Thanks, hi everyone. So great, I got a microphone and a clicker. That's a little dangerous of a combination. So as Beth is uh, calling up the PowerPoint, I'll introduce myself a little bit. Diana Pisoni with Ted Buddhist Associates. I'm the team principal of the Chicago office. We have uh, been a platinum sponsor in Chicago for over 10 years and even longer in New York. We've uh, been a part of the Cornet family in membership, in board activity, and just overall activities. So we're looking really forward uh, to being here and being with you. Um, a little history about TMA. We were formed in 1990 in New York, that's our headquarters. Came to Chicago in 2001, and then in 2009, we formed a formal alliance with MCM Architecture out of London, and that is our London affiliate firm. We do work all across the country, 37 states, uh, 16 different countries, Canada, Bermuda, Ireland, and a handful of smattering of countries over the rest of the world. Um, a little bit more information. In addition to the architecture and design branch, which is the main portion of us, we have three other uh, divisions under our umbrella. One is brand strategy, furniture coordination, and then workplace strategy and change management. Now, I should tell you the furniture coordination, that's not about purchasing furniture. It's just about going over the detailed specifications that go into the RFP process, the specification writing process, and the overall procurement side. And then, courtesy of our workplace strategy team, um, the booklets uh, that were on your chair, that's our workplace report. And this is the third year that we have done this workplace report, and it just tells a little bit of, uh, tracks the changes that we've gone through. It gives a snapshot in time this year of what our clients are doing. It's as well as it provides a little bit of a prediction for next year. So look for workplace report number four next year to see if our predictions come true. Um, in addition to this, uh, this is for overall our portfolio of clients that we've looked at. And that could range from financial, consulting, media marketing, um, insurance, uh, non-for-profits, associations, et cetera. And it really gives a broad band for all those clients. And just a quick image search of some clients that we recently completed. They could range from 150,000 150, square feet of analytics firm to um, an insurance company that was going into a former turn of the century uh, department store to a 30,000 square foot consulting firm, 12,000 square foot corporate, uh, not-for-profit uh, association, as well as media marketing, another media marketing with a, sort of a whimsical flair of their letters, um, and then consulting company. And this consulting company has actually taken us all across the country into many different states. And while they have their own brand identity, they allow uh, local offices to spread a little flair. And Wilton, 
so flair and flavor out in the suburbs, and then financial as well. So this is just a little bit of a range of what we've done, but uh, the common thread that ties them all together is we take pride in the three-dimensional story that we're creating for our clients, because as different as those clients are, their story in their office is just as different. So thank you so much for letting me give a little three-minute uh, commercial about who we are, and hope you've learned a little something, and hope you enjoy the notebook and the workplace report. Thank you. So I'm Julie Dagnan, Director of Furniture Advisory Services for CBRE. Um, thank you for giving us the opportunity to talk a little bit about this unique line of business within CBRE. So this is a line of business that five years ago was launched within project management in Chicago. And the reason that it was launched is because we began to get an understanding of the client experience as it pertained to furniture. So not does it arrive on time and is it on budget, but what is the real experience that the client has? Do they understand their options? Is the, the pricing transparent enough for them to be able to assess value? And the answer really came back no. So we launched this line of business and it's the second largest spend on a project. It can be anywhere up to 30% of a project. And in total, in the last five years, we've worked on close to $350 million worth of projects, and we've been able to deliver savings to our client upwards of 28%. And these are not savings that are derived off of um, picking a lower cost chair, right? They are savings derived from really being able to understand the discounting landscape and recommending to our clients where products should be discounted in order for them to save money. So the approach we take towards the furniture RFP is really in this order, people, pricing, and product. When product is put in front of clients without the pricing and without the people context, the truth of the matter is they don't understand it. So we've changed the process in which we elevate the role of the dealer, provide a 30-minute opportunity for them to come and interview directly with the client. So without any other furniture around them, without the manufacturers, they come in and they meet with the client. The client's able to assess chemistry. And from there, a very short list, typically of two or three dealers, are selected to receive the RFP. So the typical RFP process that we take is a little bit truncated in that we ask dealers to price out a cluster of workstations or a private office typical, a workstation, a monitor arm. And we then are able to assess the level of discounting from there. The client then has pricing in front of them. And then from there, when we go to the Mart, it's a much more relatable process for them. Um, and so once a dealer is on board, what we're doing is we're working directly with that dealer to make sure that for all the products that were not included in the RFP, of which there are numerous, that all the discounting is commensurate with the project volume. So all along the way, we're able to communicate to the client what they should be paying for and what that discounting should be. And then at the end of the day, that's what we hold the dealer responsible for. Um, we do get involved with mock-ups. Um, it's, it's a costly process for uh, clients to embark upon because when we are involved, it's an expense we ask our clients to pick up. It's a real cost to dealers and manufacturers, and so the notion that mock-ups are free is not really true. So we try to educate our client that, listen, even if you could reimburse them at cost, everybody is then at an even playing field. So 
We do the mock-up evaluation, and then we really monitor the discounting all the way through order entry. And then the other, the other process that we do offer is an audit service, which is, for us, it's kind of a window into what has been happening. So a lot of times we're able to create a good competitive RFP landscape because we've been able to understand what their purchasing patterns are and how it may be eroding at their ability to achieve deeper discounting. So this is what, um, again, it's unique to CBRE. Um, we're excited to see it grow across the country. We're now doing projects in New York, in San Francisco, in Phoenix. Um, and, and hopefully for those of you in this room that have participated, you have found it to be a good and different process. Good afternoon, my name is Steve Black and I work for Mohawk Group. Uh, I wanna thank Cornet for allowing all of us to come up here and present to you for a brief period of time. Um, oh, it stopped, uh, not yet, all right, we'll stop it right there. Um, it's a little technical deal, difficulty. Uh, Mohawk, let me tell you who Mohawk Group is. Mohawk Group is a division of Mohawk Industries. Mohawk Industries is a $9.5 billion corporation. Mohawk Industries is the largest flooring manufacturer in the world. We manufacture in 14 different countries and we have licenses to do business in 163 different countries. Mohawk Group has 37,000 employees worldwide. We are the largest flooring manufacturer in the world. That includes both ceramic, hard surface, wood, carpet, carpet tile, broadloom, woven, just about anything that you could use in a facility we can provide to you. So what does that mean? That means if, if you are a local or a global uh, client, we have the capability to be where you are and provide product and services to, to you. Um, at, Moho at Mohawk, we believe in better. What does that mean? To us, believe in better is kind of a, a, a driver. It's a driver that says, because we know we're not perfect, I don't think there is a perfect manufacturer out there, we know that we're not perfect, that we need to, we need to continue to improve. And our five pillars of, of, of believe in better are better design, better innovation, better operational excellence, better project solutions, and better sustainability. Better sustainability to us is not just adding more recycled content to a carpet. Better sustainability is about doing better for our clients, doing better for our customers, doing better for our employees, doing better for our communities. Well, that's why we participate in Susan G. Coleman and a number of other uh, programs like that. Um, so doing better is something that we all can do better together, right? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna shorten this up by just giving you a little bit of a uh, video on our sustainability thoughts. I wanna talk to you about sustainability. I'm not talking about let's make things a little less bad sustainability. I'm talking about the why was it made that way in the first place sustainability. I'm talking about ingredients, the way things are made, the ecological imperative. Better yet, think big picture. I'm talking about recognizing our place in the living ecosystem of Earth for the simple fact that this is our home. And we don't want to just keep it that way. We want to make it better. At Mohawk Group, we believe in better. 
It starts with the five pillars. Better design, better innovation, better project solutions, better operational excellence, better sustainability. But we can't move the industry towards sustainability on our own. Let's do better together. Mohawk Group, believe in better. Again, thank you for your time. It's a pleasure to be up here in front of you. Hi, everyone. Kyle Harding with JLL. I'm part of our integrated portfolio services group. Um, my team, we manage a lot of accounts and uh, really heavy on the consulting side of, of kind of how we approach the business. And um, not so much a commercial on kind of what we do, but I want to talk specifically about today's topic of the art, science, and politics of the employee experience and kind of at the front end of, uh, of that issue is really the labor side of um, what's going on in our industry today. And so there's 6.2 million jobs that are open um, that, that aren't filled, and that number keeps growing every year. Our, our unemployment rate is at 3.9%. Um, we've had a tremendous um, uh, runway or, or, or you know, the last eight years, I think, we've had employment growth. So we all track that, we all see those headline stats, but what, what we get tripped up on a lot is our clients come to us to talk about rental rate, maybe some modifications to their space. And what we've seen over the last couple of years is labor really is, is kind of front and center. So it's labor, real estate, modifications of space, new space, et cetera. And so what we've done is created this principle called 33300 to help kind of flip the conversation away from real estate and more to labor but also look at it on a real estate cost per square foot basis, which is what a lot of our clients think about, what they know, what they expect us to kind of, um, the key metric to look at. And so the 330-300 principle, and I'm gonna flip through this real quick, is you know, typically in a market, um, and some markets are different, um, but $3 a square foot in utilities is what typically a tenant would, would, would pay, and $30 a foot in rent, and, and $300 a, a square foot in labor costs. And so when we spend a lot of time here, why aren't we spending a lot of time on the human capital side? So our, our ideal state is, hey, let's get HR in the room early on and let's figure out this 300 first and then let's go execute the 30 and the three, not work it the other way around. Um, so we're gonna show you how we do that. There's eight different uh, sustainability and productivity factors that we take a look at. I'm just gonna pick on one today. So lighting is one of them that we're all I think aware of, and the more access to light you have, you sleep better, you're, you're more productive uh, during the day. Um, there's a lot of stats and a lot of um, uh, research out there and, and academics that have put out reports, but this is just kind of one stat, 18% more productive. So workers are 18% more productive if they have access to daylight during the day. And so if we can get HR and the management team and, and, and people that have influence over the real estate process to believe in that and to kind of hook them on this number, then we flip over to our calculator, which I'm gonna try to make this work. And we start to play around with the numbers. And so what I've done today is taken a look at, um, give me one second to pull this up. So I've taken a look at a, a typical Chicago project. So you have. 20,000 20, square feet, it's really about $4 in utilities, $40 in rent, you have 100 employees, and I filled all this in already. I'm kind of going through this quickly. You have an average employee spend of 100,000, 
and, and say we worked with HR to figure out what benefits are, how many sick days people take, what the attrition rate is for the firm, and then we press calculate. And this is really where kind of the magic happens in the room with HR and executives and real estate together. Hopefully this works. And what you see here is their 33300 is really 44575 So they're spending $575 a foot um, in, in, in human capital costs. And so if we can, can, if we can convince the management team, hey, you know, you're really 3% more productive because of X, Y, and Z, and we can kind of get to a, a number that everyone's comfortable with and can buy into, that equates to $17.25 per square foot. And so rather than haggling over a buck, two bucks, et cetera, and you're in an old, tired building, you know, we, the concept is, hey, maybe let's, let's focus on the right building, the right space, the right renovation to a space, et cetera. And this has really kind of helped HR drive the real estate process and have a seat at the table, uh, which is what our clients are asking for. Um, and so we just thought we'd show that to you and kind of show you a little bit of how we're some new ways of thinking today. Um, and if you have any interest, we're happy to show you the calculator, set up a time to walk through it. And I also brought a report that our chief economist put out last week about the job market and the impact it has on commercial real estate. So we have a bunch of copies if you're interested. So thank you. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, we're going to go ahead and get started with our, our program this afternoon. Um, we've got a really special program. It's actually a double header uh, with two great speakers. Um, before we get going, I uh, wanted to thank um, Kirk Carnets with ESD, Chair of the Programs, and thank my uh, co-chairs, Rob Weatherall and Jonathan Zeitler. Um, as Emma mentioned before, um, we will have our last program next month, and we're going to feature a, a special format to... Um, showcase the me membership benefits of Cornet uh, Chicago and Cornet Global. And uh, so we're hoping uh, you have the opportunity to come on out and if possible, bring somebody with who might be interested in membership. And we're going to have a little bit of a different format in terms of being relaxed and really focused on, on networking. So please uh, try to make an effort to come on out. So today's program, um, we're really excited to... Huh? Thank you. So today's program, we're really excited to have two speakers here with us to um, talk about the art, science, and politics of the employee experience. Our first speaker is Elizabeth Dukes, who is the co-founder and CMO of iOffice, an integrated workplace management software company that serves the digital workplace. With more than 2.4 million iOffice users worldwide, Elizabeth is a champion of iOffice's mission to use technology to empower the workforce and the smart workplaces that serve them. With more than two decades in the field, Elizabeth co-founded iOffice after working at Pitney Bowes Management Services, providing outsourced workplace management solutions to the Fortune 1000. Elizabeth is also the co-author of Wide Open Workspace and a regular speaker at real estate events. Our second speaker, Vic Bangia, is the CEO and founder of Verum Consulting, a company providing corporate real estate consulting services, including outsourcing solutions, support, strategy, and operations, and training and development services. Vic has over 25 years of experience in corporate real estate, real estate outsourcing, best practices, strategic planning, workflow and process improvement, and has held senior leadership positions at real estate service provider firms such as Cressa and CBRE. Vic has served on the global board of, of, of directors for Cornet and is an award-winning top-rated faculty member of the Cornet Global's executive development program. So with that, 
Please join me in giving both Elizabeth and Vic a warm welcome and um, leading our discussion in the art, science, and politics of the employee experience. Thank you. All right. Well, uh, thank you to Rob and Kurt and John, Beth, Emma, and the entire uh, Cornet Global Chicago chapter for having us here today. We're really excited to present the art, science, and politics of the employee experience, and Elizabeth and I have taken this presentation to Seattle, Portland, Minneapolis, and now Chicago. Now, typically, Elizabeth and I present this as a two-person panel with a moderator. But as you can tell by the amount of food on your table, nothing in Chicago happens in moderation. <laughs> so we decided to run our presentation back-to-back, -back, or family style, if you will. Uh, then we'll both come back up here for Q&A. So I've got to ask, how many of you believe that it's a great time to be in corporate real estate? Every hand should be up. Excellent. Good. Well, we'll be preaching to the choir today. Um, so I couldn't agree more. And so let's get started. Real quickly, is John Wickman in the audience? Is John here today? Okay. I don't think he is, but everybody send him an email and wish him a happy birthday today. So please let me, please help me to welcome Elizabeth Dukes. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure to be in Chicago with Vic and, and the group, Kurt and team. Thank you for welcoming me so, so lovely. Have any of you heard of Jacob Morgan? He is a, an author. Yeah, he's wonderful. He's an author, a, a futurist. He, he's written several books, one of which is called The Employee Experience Advantage. And he talks about how um, technology is one of the three most important factors um, that, in, that impact employee experience. Companies that invest in employee experience, and even more importantly, that invest in workplace technology, earn four times the profit and two times the revenue than companies that do not invest. I love what Kyle at JLL said about the 33300 rule. I frequently talk about that, how the, the impact of what we do and, and the value that we bring that in, influences the employee experience is really what drives the bottom line. Uh, there's also another uh, statistic out there. Gallup ran a survey last year that analyzed employee experience, and they determined that organizations that invest in employee experience outperform their peers 147% per share. That's pretty significant. Today, in corporate real estate, we have such a great opportunity. I feel like it's such an exciting time to be in the roles we're in within our organization. Because our, our purview, our sphere of influence has expanded beyond the built environment. It has expanded to include the employee and the employee's experiences inside of our workplaces. And by creating these really dynamic, fabulous work environments, workplaces, we really have a dramatic impact on the bottom line and the success of our overall organ organizations. Why, what's happened, what's gone on? Basically, there's been this rapid advancement in technology, mobility, globalization, 
this uh, desire to create environments that are more collaborative, this push to retain and attract talent. And what it's created is an opportunity, an opportunity that many define as the digital workplace. The digital workplace is a, is a business strategy to uplift the workplace, to consumerize the workplace, and allow it to work more effectively for the employees so they can be more successful inside of the workplace. What the digital workplace and, with, and the combination of technology have allowed us to do is to also improve our ability to deliver on work environments that are more cost effective, more effectively managed, more intelligently planned over the long run. So, how do we do that? What's our involvement in the digital workplace as it relates to, to CRE? What, how do we contribute to that? There's really two sides to the coin. Obviously, operations is still paramount. We still have to provide environments that are productive. We still have to maintain our operations. We still have to do all the things the employees have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. That does not go away. But the other focus is the systems that we put in place that directly touch the employee, those systems that they touch that allow them to more gracefully interact with the workspace. So let's start with the operational side. The traditional things still apply, as I mentioned. The most important thing uh, about the traditional core systems is that we have a centralized place to collect data. We, we have the ability to capture accurate data in a centralized place so that we can effectively analyze, so that we can manage and plan intelligently into the future. That's not going away. I have an example of a, of a customer we have been working with that through a, an IoT provider. The IoT provider had installed some sensors and was capturing people utilization data, and we were providing them a mechanism to visualize and analyze that data. And they came to us and said, okay, well, this is great and so exciting. We want to globally reduce our real estate portfolio by 5%. How do we do that? Well, our, our response was, well, what do you have now? What does what your global portfolio look like? What's the capacity? This is a, a global telecommunications, multi-billion dollar firm, and they, ha they couldn't answer the question because they don't have all of their data about their portfolio centralized and managed. So they couldn't, they have to start at the beginning before they can implement some kind of savings on a global basis like this. Now, I would take that a step farther. This, um, what, what we're also seeing a lot of is organizations that have uh, their core systems in place, but they're, they're dated technologies. I really encourage you to start leveraging the newer, more advanced technologies to manage your traditional environments, specifically technologies that are based on the cloud. You have so much more scalability. You have so much more flexibility. They're dynamic. They're constantly improving. They're typically open systems, so they can more effectively integrate new technologies. And quite frankly, the power of the browser today is incredible. What you can do inside of a browser versus what you can do on a desktop is, is revolutionary. So what I've also been seeing is a lot of organizations who have tech stacks currently in place for managing their portfolios 
they're really making a transition. They're looking at the technology landscape. They're looking at these new buildings that they're developing and they're saying, hey, we really want to maximize this space and we really want to make it work more effectively for our employees. So they're, they're looking to replace uh, on-prem hosted solutions that they've had for 20 years that, ha that really haven't invested in development. Uh, ConocoPhillips, for example, they have been managing their tech stack with an on-prem solution that worked fine for about 20 years now. But they've developed these brand, built these brand new, beautiful headquarter operations, and they said, if we're going to transition these to the future and continually be dynamic, we've got to change our platform. And their approach is, let's not gut everything, because some of this is really working well. Let's take a fit-for-purpose approach. So they're going to the market and, 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 and integrating solutions that make sense into their current tech stack. Another example would be the Hershey Company. They took a completely different approach. They said, we're going to start over. We have a dated system, dated systems, on-prem, a combination of on-prem and hosted, and we're going we're to start over from the beginning because uh, their employee experience strategy, they call the, their employee experience strategy is sweeter than chocolate. I love it. Um, and we're going to just start over from scratch because we recognize that our platform systems have to change in order for us to really integrate new technology and allow the workspace to rise up to meet the employee needs. So I think you need to take, uh, I would recommend taking advantage of new technologies, but you can do it. Um, in an evolutionary process and one that makes sense for your organization. And then once you've got your core tech stack, you data is centralized, it's fluid, it's dynamic, it's effectively man managing the core, then you can start to integrate newer technologies like IoT. You can't start with IoT if you don't have a base system to manage your portfolio and understand what your current capacity is. It makes no sense. So once you, you have that core, then you can take advantage of space utilization and make IoT information available for the employees. So the, the organization begins to rise up and be visualized for the employees. So for example, IoT data, you can make that available in wayfinding systems so that you can see real time and users can passively check in and out of space. The workspace can begin to predict how employees use the space and regulate temperature, regulate lighting, um, we are going to be in a position very shortly, it's available today, where our employees can, can communicate, uh, voice activated space, where they can talk to the space. And it's going to have to be as, as easy as you know, asking Siri where the closest Thai restaurant is. So our core systems are going to have to be able to consume that data and respond. So you've got to make sure your back end is in place. And then you can begin to bring in that technology to the workspace to allow it to rise up to meet those employee needs. So that's our backside, operational side. So what does the employee-facing side of the technology and the systems look like? What I'm seeing a lot of organizations doing who are moving into more of a digital workplace, workplace experience mindset is they're adopting new ways of working. They're moving to activity-based working. 
they're not they're not going from assigned to open because I think everybody's kind of determined that that really isn't successful because people need different types of workspaces depending on what they're doing throughout the day. So activity-based working allows them to identify the right space at the right time. I need a quiet space, I need a meeting space, I need a social space. So it allows them to easily identify. So the base systems, the base tool set that employees need in order to effectively engage the workspace need to allow them to be able to find, reserve, request, receive. They need to be able to find their coworkers. Where are my peers? They need to be able to find spaces. They need to be able to find meetings, events. They need to find different projects and teams. And they need information about what's going on in the workspace. What's the cafeteria menu? What's the uh, emergency um, exit strategy? What are the, when's the blood drive? When's the next leadership awards? They need information. They also need the ability to reserve space in advance for maybe planned meetings or maybe on the fly to check into a space. They need the ability to create a service ticket, ask for service, a chair is broken, um, it's too hot or cold, uh, comfort. This is where you can certainly bring in more of the smart building um, techniques to allow that to be more automated and intuitive. And then finally, they need notifications. Oh, you have a guest in the lobby, or you have a package, and we need to be able to find you. So these are kind of the base things in an activity-based working environment that employees need to be able to do. And they need to be able to do it through multiple touch points. One of the um, strategies that I've seen people deploy is really focusing on a mobile-only strategy for their employee-facing tools. People work in different ways. We all work differently based on our own personalities. We all work in different ways based on what we're doing during the day. We might be on our phone walking around the office at, at one moment. We might be working on our laptop in another. We don't want to have to get out of one into the other in order to engage some sort of workplace amenity. So you need to be able to integrate with mobile apps, kiosks, calendaring systems, Slack, um, workplace collaboration tools like Slack. I heard a statistic yesterday that Slack has over 9 million users a week on their platform. It's just an internal chat, which we use internally as well. So workplace tools have to be integrated real time, up to date across multiple platforms in order to make it really effective for the employee inside of the environment. <clears throat> So in order to do that, we have to get outside of the CRE world. We can't just be head down focused because there are data in a lot of different systems across the enterprise that are meaningful and valuable to the employee and would be relevant to them inside of the workplace. There's uh, calendaring data, there's reservations data, there's IT information, CRE, facilities, multiple data points improve the employee's ability to connect with the workplace. So in order to successfully do this, Deborah at Cushman-Wakefield, we were talking about this, we can't just be head down in our, own, in our own silo. We have to get outside of our silos. We have to collaborate across multiple departments, HR, IT. Uh, we really have to invest in collaboration. We have to engage key st stakeholders from the department heads, workplace leaders, 
um, I mean, executive leaders, uh, even employees. We really have to collaborate and set mutual goals in order to be successful with this type of dynamic change. Vic is going to talk to you a lot about how to make that really, really work and happen. So I want to give an example of a customer I've seen do this very, very successfully. It's McKesson. Uh, about three years ago, they decided that they wanted to create an employee-centric workplace. They wanted to transition all their major headquarters into a more mobile environment, activity-based, and they had a goal of doing that within the next couple of years. But when they took a look at their corporate real estate portfolio of systems, they noticed that they had 58 different systems in place managing all of their real estate and facilities data. They said, we can't manage with this many systems. We can't get accurate data. We can't perform effective analysis. And we certainly can't deliver on employee experience and expectations inside of the workplace. <clears throat> so they partnered up with their real estate firm, and they integrated and consolidated down to seven systems. And they uh, implemented a very standardized, standardized process for integrating these systems, for analytics, for reporting. They set up a process for data governance and continuous improvement so that they could continually advance um, the, the technological infrastructure that they put in place. So they got their core in place first. And then the second thing they did was they collaborated. They got outside of their corporate real estate community and created partnerships internally across HR, across IT, um, key stakeholders, and they mutually set up goals and objectives. They determined what their hurdles would be, how they would uh, collectively overcome those challenges. They set KPIs. Um, and, and, and that was what allowed them to make decisions about how they would determine what employee solutions they would choose. And then they began to layer on employee-facing technology. And it looked something like this. So they had all these different systems, multiple different systems. There are calendaring systems, there are uh, service maintenance systems, space systems, mail systems, visitor systems. And um, we actually, iOffice, pulled the critical data out of here and delivered those critical functions through multiple touch points to their employees. And the result has been uh, integrity of data. CRE and facilities have become the, the um, holder of all critical data about people and place and performance of the workplace. And so all the organization turns to them. They have improved and enhanced and maximized their real estate portfolio and reduced overall cost and increased uh, employee productivity and really customer service within their organizations. So it's been a really positive experience for them. So with that, I just want to run a quick video that highlights, um, that highlights just gives you an example of what a, a worker looks like in, in inside of a workplace that has technology, that has created a consolidated approach and given the employee not a single interface because it's multiple touch points, but all the data is in sync across all of those touch points. And I'll give it over to Vic. This is Dev. He's an engaged, productive employee at your company. His calendar is full most days. 
Today, he starts off with a meeting with the sales team. Dev uses his mobile app to find the meeting. His workspace leaders are happy because sensors are in the room tracking occupancy. The next event on Dev's calendar is a conference call. Dev uses the kiosk to reserve space. Dev notices that the chair in the quiet space is not functioning properly. A quick scan of the QR code, and he creates a service ticket to adjust the broken chair. Little does Dev know that sensors are capturing activity in the break room. This helps the FM team to make sure that coffee is always hot and fresh. Dev just got a Slack notification that a package for him has arrived. He will swing by the mailroom to pick it up on his way to lunch. After lunch, Dev consults the wayfinding kiosk for his next meeting location and checks in. It looks like Dev's guests have arrived. Sensors are picking up activity in this conference room and automatically updating floor maps to show space in use. Dev's meeting concludes. He needs to collaborate with James on a project. He reserves a workstation right by James. Dev has had a productive day, and Operations has all the key statistics they need to ensure the workspace continues to work for Dev. If you want engaged, productive employees at your company, contact us today. So Interesting about the digital workplace, you know, most corporate change initiatives, uh, initiatives of really any kind, uh, fail because the company typically does not develop clear, achievable, and realistic goals from the outset. And they also fail to bring their entire teams into the process. And that's because they fail to address their truth. And uh, as uh, uh, was mentioned earlier, my, my company's name is Virum Consulting, and Virum is Latin for truth. Um, these are the factors that are inherent to your business and your culture. If they're left unresolved, they're going to limit your success. And in most cases, they will. But to appreciate why change management and developing strong coalitions is really important to uh, increasing the employee experience in the workplace, we have to understand what shapes workplace change. And one positive trend that I see, and the gist of what Elizabeth and I have been talking about today, is the efforts to humanize the workplace with greater focus on collaboration, wellness, and technology, technology that's designed to be vehicles for innovation and employee engagement. And the technology piece that Elizabeth mentioned is especially important because I think we're at this point of departure where there's two distinct paths about technology. One of those paths, which I believe we're all advocates for, is where technology enhances the employee experience. But the other one takes us down a path of technology for technology's sake, which is a very dangerous path, I think, and doesn't bode well for anyone, especially because there's only two outcomes to that type of path. The first one is disintermediation. That's where you lose the skill sets and the resources 
that are critical support functions in a company. Those technologies, you can consider them to be things like IoT, building automation, AI. And then there's technology that doesn't even do what it's supposed to do. And there you can think of things like, well, IoT, building automation, and AI. But you can also think about things like driverless vehicles and pilotless aircraft, because if those don't work, well, the outcome's not really very good. But where the path of technology enhances the employee experience, that does bode well for all of us in the room, and it also mandates that we're all really good change managers. So how many of you like change? Okay, so there's a lot of people in the room that like change. How many of, like, how many of you like change when it's imposed upon you? Do <laughs> you like change when it's imposed upon you? I think you're lying to me. Um, I'm going to ask it in a different way. How many of you like change when you're in charge of it? All right. See, now we're, now we're learning something. How many of you like things the way they are and you don't want to see any change? Yeah. No? Change of <laughs> Well, truth is that deep down, if you think about it, no one really likes change except maybe this wet baby who's got a full diaper. <laughs> but what's true about change is that 70% of change initiatives within corporations fail. And change is harder to make in successful companies because there's the, the line of thinking that says, why fix it if it's not broke? And contrary to popular beliefs, belief, size doesn't matter. Change is difficult whether you're a small corporation or a big one. This is from a Forbes study which talked about resistance to change. And it's a little bit of an eye chart, but I'll tell you that the first column here are corporate level CEOs and C-level executives. They're less resistant to change than the other people within the organization. And the reason for that is that the change that they're imposing upon people is not going to affect them very much. The two middle layers are the vice president and director level organ, uh, uh, roles within the organization, and they're resistant to more resistant to change than the C-level. And the reason for that is that they, I call them the big no in the middle. The attitude that they have is, I didn't work my whole life to get to this position to start taking risks and jeopardize where I am in this company. The manager levels, this uh, level here, are about as flexible and about as receptive to change as the sea level, but they're, in a, they're sort of stuck in the middle. They've got the no in the middle here, which is resistant to change, and then they've got their employee level, the frontline employees, which are more resistant to change than they are. And the frontline people are more resistant to change for a number of reasons. One, it's all on them to change. The second thing is that they were never asked about what they thought of this change. They were never brought into the process. They were never asked their opinion. They were never asked to give feedback to, to the change being made. And the goals that they've been given really have no well-defined outcome. So one goal might be, hey, we're going to improve customer satisfaction. Well, that's great, but how do I know I've done that? And those are the types of goals that oftentimes at the lowest level within an organization are given to employees. What if the goal was, we're going to increase our customer retention rate to 98%, or we're going to increase referrals from existing clients from, to 16%, from 10%. Those are explicit goals. And if you can give those types of goals to the lower level employees, there'll be a greater uh, acceptance. But up here, the no in the middle, another reason for that, and actually the reason for uh, uh, the inability to accept change all the way through the organization is at the C level, oftentimes 
This, they've been insincere about the goals. For the last 15 years, they've said, we're going to make this change or we're going to make that change. And the attitude within the company is, yeah, right. I, you, you keep, it's all walk and all talk and no walk. Um, so what ends up happening is that the VP and director levels resist change more than the C-suite. Managers embrace change, but they can't seem to get their employees motivated. And the front line of the employees are feeling the greatest disconnect. Why the frontline disconnect? As I mentioned, they're convinced that they can't discover a new way of doing things. The culture within the company says, you really can't come to us with a new idea. If you have a great new idea, what I want you to do is I want you to pre-socialize and get buy-in across the organization. But if I have a frash of brilliance and I want to implement a, a change initiative and I have to go talk to 10 different people, there's a good chance that one of them is going to be a landmine that's going to blow up my new idea. But then what ends up happening is then you get more and more conservative and then the, the leadership says, well, you know what? Not only do you have to pre-socialize this change, but what I want you to do is create a committee. And what that does is it makes innovation formulaic. And what ends up happening for us in the corporate real estate industry is we start thinking about a sustaining innovation mindset. We get into a sustaining innovation mindset, which means you can be as innovative as you want inside this box. So what have we done as a result of that? We've created great initiatives to improve process, to improve workflow, to create efficiencies, but we haven't really done anything that takes us out of that box. And oftentimes, that's the, 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 the challenge that uh, lower-level employees within the organization feel. So what do you do to fix this? Well, I found out a few ways that, that really work. One of them is for the C-level. When I talk to the C-level, I say sincerity has to be your watchword. You have to walk the talk. You have to commit to the change that you want to see, that, that, is, that you want to implement, and you have to embody that change. You have to be part of that change. You just can't be imposing it upon the rest of your organization. For the VP and director level, I give them a stern warning that change is hard, but not changing is harder. The days of, of saying, well, you know what? I'm going to play it safe. I'm going to play it conservative. I'm just going to kind of not rock the boat. That's going to go away. Change is happening, and if you're not part of it, it's going to take you out. And then for the managers, I, I understand their pain. They're in the middle. They're stuck in the middle. There's two different ways that they can go. One is to understand the influencers in their organization, because as I talked about the no in the middle, there's also yes in the middle. Maybe harder to find, but what they have to do is they have to figure out who those influencers are. For me, I've always found the HR department to be a very, very strong advocate for uh, change. And... Um, and then as far as it relates to their team, they have to focus on getting their teams aligned, getting the lowest level people within the organization to give up their ideas and their, and their input so that the change can happen and that they're part of it. You also have to understand the role of technology in the workplace and the role of generations in the workplace. So let's talk a little bit about my generation, right? Um, so I'm a baby boomer, right? I was born in 1964. Baby boomers are between 52 and 70 years old. How many of you are baby boomers? Okay, there's a few baby boomers here. So I'm what they call tech adaptable. That means I can get along with technology, although it frustrates me often. Um, it overwhelms me, sometimes a lot. I mean, my, my, the clock on my VCR is still flashing 12 o'clock, so, you know, all sorts of problems with being a baby boomer. The, <laughs> oh yeah, so explain what a VCR is to some of the other folks in the room. Gen Xers, 36 to 52, how many Gen Xers? All right, so you guys are tech savvy. That means you don't 
you not, you not only get along with technology, you've mastered technology. Uh, you make it make your lives uh, more convenient, more productive, more efficient. Uh, these are the people that are out there loving every new app that they find, and they're the ones that are telling me to download it onto my iPhone, and then I'm struggling to do that. And then I, you know, so they're the ones that have 70 or 80 different icons on their iPhone, and I've got 14. Uh, the millennials, which are Gen Y, so these are people that are 19 to 36. How many of you? Yeah, raise them up. You're proud. These are tech reliant. These are people that, that don't know how to get along without technology. And then there's Generation Z, which is people that are under 19. Anybody here under 19? Anybody want to be under 19? Yeah. So for them, the technology loses its meaning. Everything is tech. There's nothing that's not tech. These are like my kids. I've got an 18-year-old and a 14-year-old. Um, they're, they're so reliant on tech. They don't know anything that's not tech. Um, but interestingly enough, some of them are actually nostalgic for an earlier time, like my 18-year-old is big into classic rock because he says that it sounds real, it sounds live, it sounds like it was produced by human beings rather than produced by machines. And, uh, and so they're, they're an interesting group of people. Um, and it's going to be interesting for baby boomers because baby boomers are going to retire and, 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 and uh, leave the workforce. The Gen Xers are going to have to um, manage the Gen Y, which are very difficult, interesting, and challenging uh, group to manage. And then Gen Z, we don't even know what they're going to do. My 18-year-old, my my who's going to be going to college soon, says, I don't even know what I want to be, and I don't even know what I will be, because the job that I'm going to probably end up having hasn't even been created yet. So we're managing within that uh, rapid amount of change, um, and, and it's going to be really, really interesting. So this is how the generational shifts apply to corporate real estate and into the workplace. Um, baby, millennials now outnumber the baby boomers in the workplace, 75.4 uh, million to 74.9. That happened in April of 2015, according to Pew Research. Gen X will actually cross that milestone in 2028. So by 2028, we're, the, the baby boomers are going to be the smallest generation in the workforce and, and dwindling rapidly. But Deloitte did a study that said only 28% of uh, employees surveys, millennials surveyed, felt that their current organization is making full use of their skills. Now hit the brakes for a second. 28% of millennials feel that the current organization is not making, is only 28% only feel that the current organization is making full use of their skills means that 72% do not. Who's the 72% in here of the millennials? You probably all have your resume ready to go looking for another job in case it comes along. Um, and that means that employers have to do something to retain this generation because they're, they're increasingly willing to leave. Well, how do you create that employee engagement? How do you create that employee experience that makes them want to stay there? Well, one way is to think about uh, the, the issues that are taking place within the industry right now. Since 2014, the average tenure of employment has gone down from 4.6 years to 4.2 years. Now, that might not sound like a lot, but you're losing corporate culture. You're losing your cultural identity, institutional knowledge. All the things that hold a company together and have held companies together is kind of pulling apart at the seams. That's a big challenge for employers when they want to look for uh, uh, managing a very, very mobile and very uh, uh, multi-generational workforce. Employee experience is becoming more and more important and more and more of a deciding factor for people who want to work for your company. They want significance in the workplace. People want a, a, a role that has meaning that they can tie directly to the mission and vision of the company, where maybe today that's a little confusing for a lot of people. 
And if you have more of this on-demand workforce, which you've, used, you've heard the term gig economy and, and, and uh, freelancers, well, I think of the on-demand workforce in its, in its extreme to be kind of a mercenary workforce, one where there is no employee loyalty. It is, it is a free agent uh, market. And then you've got to think about the fact that millennials have a lot of social media leverage. You know, if, if I'm a baby boomer and I don't like my boss, me and my buddy go down to the bar, we have a few beers, and we talk about how the boss is awful. And we, but when we go back to work the next day, we don't do much more than that. Younger generational workers will actually go out online and post stuff about how terrible it is to work for that company. They'll, they'll, the, the, the message gets spread loud and, and, and far. And that's a, big, that's a big challenge for companies. They have to make sure they're they have a reputational risk with what happens on social media. The other thing is just an idea that I have that I think is going to be very interesting. So I own my own car insurance. My employer doesn't really provide me. Well, it does me because I have my own company. But with my employer, my employer didn't provide me my car insurance. I provided my own. But if healthcare becomes portable, where I own my own healthcare, even though I work for company XYZ, their benefits program is not going to keep me an, as an employee for that company. So today, there's a lot of companies who uh, you know, have employees that stick around only because the benefits are good. In the future, that's, that, that, there's a potential that that could go away. But how do you retain and recruit workers and make them want to stay with your company? You think of real estate as a brand. And this is where your HR department can really help you. So this is a picture of the headquarters for Be The Match in Minneapolis. It's a bone marrow registry at a nonprofit organization. Uh, they built this brand new headquarters right across the street from uh, 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 Target Field, which is where the Minnesota Twins poorly play baseball. <laughs> and um, it's a fantastic headquarters building. What they've done there is they've actually created real estate as a brand. You can't walk around that facility without understanding the mission, the vision, the values, the vibe of, of that organization. Every wall has a story of somebody who's either a donor or a recipient. Every person that works there really feels like they belong to that company. The, the spaces are open, collaborative. The feeling is really um, uh, positive. It's an amazing place, and the people that work there are very passionate about where they work. Now, when I go to work for somebody, and I, give, I go meet with the HR department, I give them my resume, and I set it down, and I say, this is, this is my background. This is my skill set. This is what I've done in my career. This is why you should hire me. But millennials will go in, sit down, put their resume down, and say, this is my background. This is my skill set. This is my experience. Why should I work here? And so when you think about real estate as a brand, it, it is really important because that's what's going to keep employees coming and being, and being part of your organization. That and what you're giving them in the way of technological tools that will help them be more productive, more collaborative, exactly what Elizabeth was saying. Um, one of the things that I did with my company uh, on the one slide where I showed you how to get your lower level employees involved in the organizations, I came up with a process that's an acronym of my company name uh, that uses these interesting cards uh, called discovery cards right here. And the acronym is Validate Assumptions, Eliminate Obstacles, Recast Expectations, Unveil a New Strategy, and Manage the Implementation. And the way the cards work is that I bring all of the people uh, in, that, in that group that's undergoing the change together, and I give them a deck of these cards. And I say, I want you to pull out the top five cards that you think is going to derail this process. And when they pull out the five cards, I say, I don't want to see them. Put them face down and push them to the middle of the table. I give everybody a break. 
I look through the cards, there's usually three that'll show up the most often. I pull out the three that do show up the most often, bring everybody back in the room and I say, okay, we're gonna solve these three problems because they represent 75 to 80%, 70 to 80% of the things that could go wrong with this project. And what I've done in, by creating this process is I've given everybody a chance to voice their opinion safely and anonymously. And once they've done that, they've built a higher level of trust that they, they, they were able to talk about what's on their mind without feeling like they had to raise their hand and make an issue of it. But now that the cards are on the table, they're more willing to make uh, and come up with solutions to that uh, process. So what we've done there then is given employees at the lowest level a voice, ownership in the change, provided a safe and anonymous environment for them to voice their concerns, and then a collaborative environment for, for them to actually proactively or preemptively solve for those problems. Because once we lay out those cards, they have a second set of cards that have solutions on them. And we're gonna go around the room and we're gonna say, for this first problem, let's all talk about what we feel the solution is. And then all of a sudden you see that team come together and collaborate on the solution. And when they do that, they can actually eliminate about 75 to 80% of their concerns. In fact, they can find out that some of their concerns are misguided um, or um, false concerns. But once you do that, then you gotta watch what happens. It's amazing to see a team come together and collaborate, and that lowest level of, of employees that, uh, have, that struggle with change, you'll see that percentage that's 45% on the, on the Forbes chart come down uh, drastically. And that does improve the ability for them to be more successful. The other thing is you gotta focus on systems thinking. How many of you play Jenga? All right, fun game, right? So how many of you have taken classes in systems thinking? All right, well if you've played Jenga, you've, you've taken classes in systems thinking. Basically, systems thinking is, try, is understanding how one change affects another. Oftentimes we make change, and we, we are, as change managers, we're managing change within an environment. We forget the ramifications that one move has on something else. So when you start to think like a systems thinker, you have to, you have to understand how does that system that exists today generate behavior? So you got the Jenga pile. How does your behavior change based on what you see in that Jenga pile of, of what your next move should be? What, how do you manage the tension that exists? You move one thing, you gotta make sure that you manage the tension. You also gotta shorten the time between change and results. If you mandate some sort of change or you implement some sort of change and two years go by before you see results, people are gonna lose interest. People are gonna lose their focus. You gotta work on small, immediate changes that have immediate results. Then you can focus on longer ones. Once people get used to the fact that change works, they'll continue to wanna to do that. Um, You also have to look out for unintended consequences. Again, Jenga is a great example of that, unintended consequence. You pull one thing over here and everything over here falls apart. Um, you have to find out about the mental models, the ingrained thinking, the thinking of, you know, if it's not broke, why fix it? You also have to ask a lot of what if questions. Really good blue sky what if questions. What would this look like if we made this change? Because when people really can vision, visualize what a change is gonna do for them, they will be on board. And then if you keep asking those what if questions, you're doing something called successive approximation. You're finding out where that change can be approximated to have the greatest impact. So these are all ways to take what Elizabeth talked about earlier in creating a better employee experience for your, for your companies um, and in your organizations and for your clients that allow you to actually have greater levels of success. Because one thing that's truly important is that you have to focus on user experience. I love this slide, design and user experience. People are gonna find out 
what to do, whether you want it done or not. And the last thing is avoid tech for tech's sake, because you don't want to be in a situation where you're having a meeting and nobody's really in the room. All right, so thank you very much. We're going to take some time now to uh, answer some questions. Both Elizabeth and I will uh, jump up here on the stage and, and take your questions if you have any. Thank you very much. Stand up. Raise your oh. hand and I'll try to run over right. there. Any questions? Back here. When you were talking about implementing change within certain companies, what are some of those things that constantly show up for people and, and helpful to break down some of those barriers in companies? For me, for me, it's, it's, it's really helping each individual understand how that change is going to affect them. I'm working with a client right now, uh, and we're undergoing a big change uh, initiative next week. Uh, and one of the things that we're going to do in there because this particular change doesn't affect their day-to-day -day work, but it does affect how they position themselves in their job. Uh, we have to be very careful because uh, obviously the first concern is this is, too, this is going to add to my workload or this is going to change my day-to-day. -day. If it's not going to change the day-to-day, -day, you have to be very clear. And if it is going to change their day-to-day -day work, you have to uh, help them figure out how to manage that extra effort. Um, but when it's a change that's actually going to improve their productivity or their workplace experience, you've got to show them how that's going to actually help. I know there's a little bit of a, a hurdle to get over because people think, well, I have to learn something new. But if you show them what the outcome of that, of that new uh, tool or technology is, uh, they'll, they'll, find it easy, they'll find it more easy to adapt to it. I think it's a lot easier, with, again, with people who are very tech-savvy or tech-reliant to, to implement that type of change because they'll just embrace it right away. And, and the same with implementing technology. As long as you show them kind of what the, the end game looks like and they're involved in what that developing what that picture looks like, then they're more invested in the process. And then typically you have success. And then I can't say enough about training, you know, getting engaged in, in training and, and having a good source to give feedback. That improves technology adoption and integration for sure. Good question. Hold on one second. Is it? Go ahead. Real estate is typically a very easy thing to ROI, right? I, mean, I find that I talk to a lot of people in real estate, and I save on energy, I save on space. How do you get outside of that mentality when you're talking about things like user experience I think they go hand in hand. I think that you can adopt new ways of working inside of your real estate, activity-based working, that better uses your space, gives you the ROI on your space, but also enhances the employee's experience inside the space. Now, getting there may not be so easy. When you introduce these concepts to employees, their immediate reaction is, well, you're, you're taking away my space and my cube and my office and whatever that is. But I think that if you go through an effective change management process, you communicate, they go hand in hand. Because the employee, have you ever heard that adage that 
people um, think what they have is, is great and they think what they, they, they don't know what it is, it's not gonna work for them and then they get there and they're like, this is the greatest thing ever. Um, I, I, I experienced that myself. I remember when I started, I worked in a cube and today I work in an open office and nobody has walls and I love it and I can't imagine working any other way. Um, but I think what you're talking about, can, you can successfully demonstrate both by changing the dynamics of how you use your space, giving envi uh, employees environments that is more effective for how they work, giving them the technology to effectively use that space, then you can get the ROI on your space. But if I'm the buyer, how are you selling that to me? When that's kind of ephemeral, when I go and talk to my guy who's getting me a, an improved process on managing my chiller, yeah. or I'm getting somebody who's just maintaining, those sorts of things, well, you want to get maximum utilization out of your space, right? And they say 50% of space goes underutilized at any given time. Sure, and, and, and I think that's uh, an argument that has been made, and I think a lot of people yeah. sort of get that. But the improvement on the $300 square foot cost, hmm. I'm not so sure about that. Yeah, and it's tough. I have a good ROI story. so. Um, I worked for a company where uh, I was trying to implement a workplace change. And uh, I didn't have good ROI numbers. And I, I went to the CFO and I said, we need to implement this change because we're not able to recruit and retain employees. This is not really the, the most fun place to work. It's a little drab, uh, not very productive, not very collaborative. You know, the furniture's from 1990. We should really look at updating this space. And I was asked for an ROI. And I didn't have one, didn't have a good one. Got thrown out of the office, right? <clears throat> We're not doing this. All you want to do in real estate is spend money. That was, that was the, the attitude. So then I learned about the influencers that I needed to talk to. And I went to the HR department. And, I, and I, we just had conversations. And, and they said, yeah, we're having trouble recruiting and retaining employees because they're always going to our competitors because they've got such nice space over there. And I, and, and, you know, I, I knew what that space looked like. They were going to meet with the same uh, uh, C-suite executive, and I said, when you do that, tell them about the challenges that you're facing. And if they ask what needs to happen, you know, go ahead and throw me under the bus. Tell them it's because we're not doing what we need to be doing. So they had that meeting with the, with the CFO, and they said, we really think that if we change the way we work around here, we change our collaborative environment, we create open, open uh, office environments, and bring in you know, uh, technology that can help productivity, we'll start to retain and recruit more employees. Um, and the CFO said, well, what do you need for this to happen? And he said, well, we need real estate to get off their butts and do something about this, because they're the ones that actually have to implement this change. So then I get a call saying, why aren't you doing this? <laughs> right? And in my head, I'm thinking, because you threw me out of your office two weeks ago for not having an ROI. But what ended up happening is I found out that the uh, HR department can actually appeal to the C-level about real-world problems without having that, that, that financial aspect of it. We still had to obviously come up with an ROI, but to get further along, to get further ahead in the decisioning, we could do that if we started to have a little bit of an emotional appeal because the CFO and the rest of the C-suite really did understand the fact that we weren't able to retain and recruit employees because we didn't have a productive and an efficient working environment. Deb, yeah, it's you. Thank you. Um, 
great presentation, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, in the video and in your conversations, you guys talk about the importance of information, which I think we'd all agree with. Um, you specifically highlighted sensor technology, which is fabulous, but um, in my experience, the price point is still fairly prohibitive, and I just happened to be with McKesson, the lead of McKesson last week, and he said, he really only used a small sample of sensors because the price point wasn't where it needed to be yet. And at what point in time do you feel like that'll get to a manageable level where the combined ROI is achievable? It's continuing to go down since we started integrating IoT and sensors into our software platform. We've con continued to see those prices drop. What we're still recommending is do um, tests of the using the IoT data and, and transport that to different areas, different uh, neighborhoods, different conference room spaces, get a sampling every three months because it, it, it's still incredibly expensive um, for lighting up all of your workstations and all of your conference rooms. Over time, just like any technology, the cost of that will continue to drive down. Um, and there's so many new technologies that we're seeing too. Um, what we started out working with were the just the motion um, sensors and um, heat uh, sensors. And we're getting the technology is getting more sophisticated, giving you more granular data about people counting. So I wouldn't go whole hog and light up your whole space. I would um, take it slow, have a test area see what kind of metrics you can get out of it and, and move that around your portfolio um, over a period of time until the cost goes down and until the technology continues to improve. I did a presentation at uh, IFMA a while back. Can I say IFMA in this room? I don't think I should say IFMA. But I did a presentation at some other association. Uh, and my time horizon was five years. I basically said, if you haven't embraced IoT technology in five years, you're going to be looking for a job. Uh, and you have to get ahead of it because the people that are in facilities management that haven't embraced it are going to be the people that are really on the, on the wrong side of the, the, the change. But I think within the next five years, uh, with the number of uh, companies like even the ones that I'm working with here in town that are doing the predictive analytics, IoT work, um, it's moving very, very quickly. Okay. We're running up against our time, so okay. uh, I want to ask a final question. But before I do... I just wanted to mention that uh, Elizabeth and Vic have offered to stay later if anybody wants to talk to them after the program. Okay. So my question is, could you suggest five words that will send everybody here back to their offices with a sense of being inspired about the future? <laughs> Employee experience wins the race. It's a good one. It's five? Very good. All right. Uh, humans are still in charge. Yeah. Very good. Like very good. Okay, well, thank you very much for the great program. Hey, thank you, folks.